Well, open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 14. And I will read the first 12 verses of this uh, chapter. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and give thanks, gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. When you're reading a book and you come to the final part of a book, that's good. That means you've you've finished it. It's always a good uh, feeling. And that's what we're doing. We're coming to the final part of this uh, epistle to Romans. But when you're coming to the final parts of a book, there's a big difference between a conclusion and an appendix, and you can read it right up there at the top, uh, uh, usually. If you read a book with no conclusion, uh, something is missing, or not a very good conclusion. Something is uh, missing. You've read about some very interesting uh, tidbits, but why was it written? What's the point of all that? How is it drawn uh, uh, together? And so if you read a book with no conclusion, or I guess a weak uh, conclusion, there's, there's something uh, missing. If you read a book with no appendix, it doesn't matter. The book could actually be the same uh, without it. There are things that the author had some kind of an interest in and wanted to say, but he couldn't put it in anywhere. And so he just decided to put it in an appendix uh, at uh, the end. And you can read it if you're interested or not. But uh, the book stands uh, the same. Well, it's my belief that chapters 14 and 15 of uh, Romans, which address the issue of division uh, in the church, are not so much an appendix to the epistle of Romans, to everything that Paul's been writing about, uh, but rather serves as a conclusion to the book of Romans. In other words, it draws together everything that Paul's been uh, saying. Addressing this issue of uh, division or potential division in the church at Rome for Paul was not so much an afterthought as it was a target that he was aiming for all along. This is why he gave them such a detailed um, a presentation, the most detailed presentation in all of scripture of the gospel. Paul had never been to the church in Rome, 
But you remember he wanted the church in Rome to, to help him spread the gospel in Spain. In Spain. He's pushing westward. He had never been to Rome, but there was a church established there. He wanted to leapfrog over them and for them to support him uh, and help him uh, as he uh, preached the gospel in uh, Spain. And Paul knew that he needed their help for gospel witness and that disunity destroys witness. Disunity destroys witness. Um, that's why if there's a conflict that arises uh, in a church, you are to speak about it to the person uh, who has uh, offended you uh, in some way in an environment of love. You're not to speak about them, but to them. And you're not to speak to them in an environment of anger, but rather in an environment of love. That's hard to do. It's easier to... Uh, it's easier to speak about them than to them, uh, about uh, uh, the, whatever the difficulty is. But it's actually the ABCs of Christian living in uh, the church. The Bible says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So this is uh, basic to life in the church. We're not to be shocked when conflicts arise in the church or think of the church as a place where conflicts never arise. The church is not uh, presented as a utopia. It's a wonderful place. But, and it's a privilege, uh, to be in church, but, uh, it's not a utopia. It's a, it's actually a place where those who are still sinners are working together on things that are difficult or on mission, uh, together. And so we're not to be shocked or to just hope that conflict never arises, but we're to deal with it in a biblical way and not in a worldly, uh, way. Well, Paul knew he needed the church in Rome. He needed their unity for gospel uh, witness. And he knew there was something lurking in the background that either was destroying or maybe could destroy gospel witness. And so Paul began to write them. And what did he write them about? He wrote them about the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to the Jew, uh, unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to trust in it for myself. I'm not ashamed of the unity that it brings, and I'm not ashamed to give it to others. And a crisis in confidence in one of those things is a crisis in confidence in all of those things. That is, to be ashamed of the gospel, trusting in it for yourself, to be ashamed of the unity that it brings, or to be ashamed of giving it to others. One of those affects all of them. They all uh, rise and fall uh, together. So Paul uh, brought the gospel to bear in Romans. In fact, I think this was maybe his purpose when he sat down to write he brought uh, the gospel to bear on a senseless disunity that was threatening to ch tear the church apart into rival uh, uh, factions. So uh, you can't embrace the gospel without also embracing church unity and also church uh, witness. The gospel brings uh, both of those. What you believe about the church, what you practice about the church is an expression of what you believe about the gospel and reveals what you believe about the gospel uh, as well. And, and uh, certainly defining the church around divisive views is antithetical to the gospel. So this morning, this morning, I want to uh, speak to you about uh, three ways the gospel brings about church unity. And we'll take them uh, one at a time, and it'll, it'll bring us basically verse by verse through our passage uh, that I read uh, uh, this morning. But uh, the first way in which the gospel brings about church unity is this. 
The gospel brings about a life of welcome to all the saints. The gospel brings about a life of welcome to all the saints. Let me read the first three verses for this. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. The division that was threatening the church in Rome was one that was based on, as these uh, comments reveal, different opinions of food, different opinions of food about what foods were and weren't permitted uh, to be eaten by uh, a Christian, and also, we'll get to this in verse 5, also observance of special days different opinion about uh, what days were uh, to be um, observed. Uh, Paul refers to these two different um, uh, views, two different groups who held to these uh, two different views of food or two different views of um, observing days. He refers to them as the strong and the weak. And you can see that right away. Um, except the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing uh, judgment on his uh, opinions. Um, and the one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats uh, vegetables only. So he refers to actually uh, those who believe they're permitted to eat anything uh, as strong and those who still have scruples about this uh, as weak. Uh, he refers to the one who believes they can observe every day the same. There's no special days that were required to uh, um, uh, observe in a, a special way on uh, the calendar for believers. He refers to them as strong and those who believe we must observe special days uh, as uh, weak. So in using those terms strong and weak, Paul indicates that one of them is right and the other one is wrong. Those who are strong are, uh, are, are correct uh, about that, but none of them is sinning. None of them is sinning. So th this is a, a, not about an issue of, of where God has commanded one way or another, but this is a, a, an issue uh, in which it, neither of them is uh, uh, sinning. And yet each of the groups is susceptible to sinning against uh, uh, the other, sinning against the other in certain ways, both of them uh, uh, by being tempted to say, well, how can anybody think differently from me? Uh, about uh, this. And so there's specific instructions uh, for each one. The one who eats, the one who's strong and thinks he uh, knows that he uh, is permitted to eat anything, is not to regard with contempt, not to despise the one who does not eat. And that's the special temptation uh, for them. Why can't they Why can't they do the same thing that I, I'm doing? What's wrong with them? Why do they feel like they can't uh, eat uh, certain food? And so the temptation is to despise. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. And that's the spe special temptation for them, saying, well, I'm being very careful to eat the right food, to observe the right days, but look at this person, they're not. And so the temptation is to judge them. Well, they're sinning because they're not doing, they're not thinking through this uh, the same way as, uh, as I am. And uh, so uh, Paul commands uh, neither to do that, but instead to accept, accept. Uh, for both of them. So the issues that were troubling this church, they were very serious about, uh, had to do with food 
and also to uh, special days. And um, it's recorded in scripture for us. There's there's parallel uh, actually to probably countless areas in the Christian life where um, we don't have a specific command uh, and Christians approach it in different ways. So actually anything pertaining to wisdom, issues that have come up throughout the life of the church has to do with alcohol, dancing, playing cards, going to movie theaters, Mixed swimming, you know, boys and girls swimming uh, together, what music you listen to, whether a woman should pray uh, in public, head coverings, uh, and more. And uh, you can think of these past years, whether to wear a mask, whether not to wear a mask, whether to be vaccinated, whether not to be vaccinated, all of those uh, can bring um, division, can bring about these uh, temptation to these two attitudes of despising or else judging. And uh, so these are things that Paul warns about, and uh, uh, hopefully some of those things um, have, you can have a little sympathy uh, with, have hit home in such a way that you can have a sympathy with the, the uh, Roman uh, Christians getting um, uh, involved in division over issues that are, are really secondary and, and uh, not something that uh, should be uh, uh, dividing, uh, should be dividing the church. So the uh, division had to do with, uh, he mentions it here, food, specifically that one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables uh, only. And you might think of these dietary restrictions that um, the division was basically Jewish Christians who were observing the old dietary uh, laws that they had grown up with versus Gentile Christians who were saved out of paganism, none of that was familiar uh, to them. And, and uh, in Christ, they, they knew they were free. They didn't have to observe uh, any, any of the food uh, laws. Uh, it, that may be uh, what's underlying it, although it's a, it may be a little more complicated as, as well. Uh, the one who were weak in uh, Rome were eating only vegetables. And the Jewish law allows you to eat some kinds of meat. It doesn't allow you to eat pork. Uh, so uh, there may be uh, something a little more complicated uh, going on. Uh, but chapter 15, which is still talking about the same thing, does reveal that the issue of Jew and Gentile was underlying uh, some of this because it talks about um, the Lord's purpose was uh, for them to have unity, for him to bring about uh, worship between Jew and Gentile uh, united uh, in one. And so uh, the issue of... Um, uh, Jew and Jewish and Gentile believers was uh, a part of it. Although Paul himself was a Jewish believer, and he considered himself strong, he knew he knew that uh, none of these things uh, were binding. Gentiles could get into these uh, sort of scruples as well, uh, even over foods and over uh, 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 holidays, as well as Paul's epistle to the Galatians, who were Gentiles, reveals as well. So it wasn't a, a total uh, clear cut. Uh, division between Jewish believers and uh, Gentile uh, believers. Situations may arise where the strong need to practice the same restrictions as the weak and uh, to do that out of love. Paul says that not so much in the passage that we're going to the 12 verses that we're looking at um, uh, this morning, but next week in the passage, he's going to talk about situations where the strong who know that none of this is uh, forbidden uh, by the Lord, need to um, practice the same restrictions as the weak and uh, to do so out of uh, love. 
but certainly not as a requirement for church fellowship. In fact, Paul withstood Peter to his own face in public and not in private because Peter had started doing that, uh, restricting uh, fellowship of the church around a, a position of the week, you could uh, uh, say around certain food uh, laws. And since he had been doing that in public, Paul uh, rebuked him in public. He didn't just take him aside in private, but he uh, rebuked him uh, in other. So there may be uh, situations, in fact, there are situations, where the strong need to practice the same uh, restrictions as uh, the weak. Uh, but the central premise of everything that Paul is saying uh, here is that one of those situations is not uh, for church fellowship to be defined around the practice of the weak or defined around the practice of the strong, uh, for that matter. But uh, the church is to be a place where all in Christ are welcomed. And so you see that uh, two times in uh, the verses, the three verses that I read. Welcome, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his uh, opinions. And then he says that the one who eats is not to uh, despise the one who does not eat, nor does the one who does not eat to judge the one who eats for God has, and it uses the same word again, this word for welcome, God has welcomed them. And so these divisions are not to divide uh, the body of Christ. This word for welcome uh, is used only in one other place in Scripture. It's used in uh, Philemon for what the church there was to do for Onesimus. When he returned, they were to welcome him. That is, fully and lovingly accept him as a brother in uh, Christ. And so this is what uh, Christians are commanded to do even around these uh, difficult and potentially uh, divisive uh, issues. So that makes sense. I think all of that makes uh, uh, good uh, sense. But let me point out just one more thing in this uh, uh, passage that's interesting. And uh, I, I want you uh, to see, and that is Paul doesn't just call the two groups or the two opinions uh, of these things, the strong and the weak, the strong who um, know that they're not restricted uh, from these things and just need to honor the Lord, but uh, they're not restricted and the weak who have uh, certain uh, scruples. He doesn't just call them the strong and weak the strong and the weak, but rather he calls them the weak in faith, the weak in faith. And uh, the strong person has faith that he might eat uh, certain things. It says that verse one, except the one who is weak in faith, in faith, and but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his uh, opinions. And then the strong person here, one person has faith that he may eat uh, all things. And you might say, well, that's just kind of an awkward way of saying, well, he believed the strong person believes that he can eat all things. That's what he believes about uh, food. But no, it says it in a in kind of a little more awkward and uh, way that catches your attention than that. He has faith that he may eat uh, all uh, things. And um, kind of goes along with this being uh, not an appendix, but a conclusion to say that faith here means the same thing as it means elsewhere in uh, the letter. That is, faith that believes the gospel. Faith that believes the gospel. Uh, those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith, it's, it's speaking of the faith that believes the gospel. In fact, in verses 4 through 11, it's going to mention the term Lord uh, 
10 times. And so in this passage about the strong in faith and the weak in faith, we learn something about the central tenet of the gospel, which is believed by faith. And that is that Jesus is Lord. Uh, not just we learn that he is the Lord, but we learn here kind of at the conclusion about the character of his lordship, that central term of the gospel, which is clung to in uh, faith. Well, the weak don't have any less of a grasp on the basic content of the faith than the strong do. That is, the weak are trusting in Christ, that Christ died and rose again uh, in their place. It's only that they haven't thought through and realized all the implications of that faith, that Jesus is uh, Lord and all uh, that that means. So they have real faith, uh, the, the same faith, actually, of those who are strong in faith, but they haven't thought through all the implications uh, of that, and that's why they're referred to as weak in faith on these uh, issues. Paul hints all along the way that they should think through it. That's why he calls them weak in faith and the others uh, strong in faith, but not, they shouldn't be hurried uh, to it. In fact, um for this part, he doesn't just hint, but he comes right out and says their weakness in faith should not hinder Christian uh, fellowship, but rather uh, both weak and strong in faith because it's the same faith should be welcomed, should be fully and lovingly uh, accepted, not because they've worked out all the implications of the faith that they have uh, and believe, but because they belong to Christ and they belong to him by by faith. So let me ask you this question as, you, as we uh, uh, finish this point, and that is, have you judged those who are weak in faith, who don't think through things the same way uh, that you do, and because of that, uh, uh, they um, are more restrictive or less restrictive uh, than you are? Have you despised them? Have you judged them as sinning? Have you uh, despised them for being more restrictive uh, uh, than you are? Have you fallen short in some way? of fully and lovingly accepting them, then you need to hear this uh, command, accept the one who is weak uh, in faith. And uh, not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, not to judge the one who eats for God has welcomed them. He's fully and uh, completely uh, welcomed uh, them. Well, three ways this morning the gospel brings about uh, church unity. The first is that the gospel brings out brings about a life of welcome to all the saints, both strong and uh, weak, both eating and not eating, both observing days and not observing days. The gospel brings about a life of welcome to all the saints that were uh, required uh, to welcome the saints. The second is this. The gospel brings about a selfless kind of life. This is another way in which the gospel brings about church unity. The gospel brings about a selfless kind of, uh, selfless kind of life. And let's continue, uh, in verse four. This, this will take me, uh, from verse four to nine. Verse four. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul asks, uh, a question that's designed to put the hearer in its, in his place. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you to, to judge the servant or of another. That is, who are you to put yourself in the place of God? God's accepted them. God's welcomed them fully into his family. And you are standing in his place judging them. Who are you to judge uh, the servant uh, of another? The offense to God here is double 
It's a serious one. It's not only usurping God's place of judgment, trying to push God off of the judgment seat. Well, I should be the one uh, uh, judging. Uh, not only usurping God's uh, place, but also rendering a different verdict than he would uh, render to them. It says, who are you to judge the servant of another at all? To his own master, he stands or falls. And in this case, he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord is able uh, to make him stand. In fact, that's part of his lordship, as we'll talk about in a moment, is to make them all believers strong and weak, to make them stand at his judgment seat so that he approves uh, of them. And so uh, Paul, he's uh, speaking of kind of the same courtesy they in this world where slaves were a common thing, same courtesy they'd offer to an, uh, a servant who's owned by another person. You know, you, you wouldn't judge that servant or give them a punishment because it's not your servant. It doesn't belong to you. Uh, shouldn't you offer that much courtesy and more to the Lord in the way that you uh, welcome those in his church and refuse to stand in judgment uh, over them? Verse 5 introduces the, uh, the other issue. Well, it wasn't just food. It was days as well. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And so this was also a, a, a potential division that Paul seeks to uh, 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 tone down and uh, cause to not be a, a, a um, difficulty. Um, Christians are free to observe holidays, but not required. And that's different from Old Testament law, where they were uh, required to observe certain days of uh, the year. In fact, it was quite a complicated uh, schedule. And uh, all that has been fulfilled in Christ uh, just as the food laws have been uh, fulfilled in uh, Christ as well. And so Christians are free to observe uh, certain days, but they're not uh, required to it. We have that perhaps in our own uh, experience. Uh, Christmas, which some fully embrace. They put their Christmas lights up on their house the day after Thanksgiving and uh, delight in what it means to be a Christian celebrating Christmas. Some embrace it with reservations, some embrace it not at all. It's a pagan holiday. There's some point to that uh, as well and uh, choose not to uh, celebrate it uh, at all. And uh, it, those in the church had different um, uh, attitudes towards uh, different days, uh, probably thought the same thing of uh, Passover or the Feast of Booths, Feast of Pentecost, Sabbaths, New Moons uh, that were celebrated, Easter perhaps. They were uh, beginning to, uh, some perhaps were observing that even as uh, Christians. Uh, Christmas probably developed later. I don't know that they uh, were regarding that day as uh, above uh, uh, another. Uh, but these are things Paul said, let each person be fully convinced in his own mind uh, what he should do. There's no requirement uh, for this. Uh, let the difference stand, and each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Well, Paul inter- begins introducing kind of a surprising thought uh, in this verse where he talks about um, days, and it, he's going to develop it uh, more. And that is uh, that those who are not, let's say, strong, don't just please the Lord when they become strong. Or it's not just that the Lord is pleased with them because he's graciously overlooking what they're doing uh, in their observing and considering themselves bound by more than the Lord wants them uh, to be bound uh, by. But rather what Paul indicates here is that when two people are doing two different things, one considering themselves bound to do something, another knowing that uh, they are not, 
They may be both pleasing the Lord right at that time, doing separate things uh, together. They may be both uh, pleasing uh, the Lord. Um, Paul uh, perhaps is hinting that those sh- they, uh, the weak should become uh, strong, but there's certainly no rush uh, for them to do that. And here he begins to uh, speak uh, as if each of them is uh, pleasing uh pleasing the Lord. Let, let me continue with this. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are uh, the Lord's. And uh, so, uh, those practicing totally opposite activities can both be pleasing the Lord, especially when uh, what they're doing is coupled with thanksgiving. The one who eats, eats and thanks the, the Lord. Uh, the one who does not eat uh, also gives thanks to uh, the Lord. What Paul points out about both of these who are practicing this, uh, an important phrase in verse 7, not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us lives unto himself. This speaks of all Christians. All Christians, whether their faith is weak or uh, strong, they're not uh, living for themselves. To live for yourself is to order your life around what's good for you, your desires, your background, uh, what makes you uh, to be uh, uh, comfortable. Uh, he says uh, that's not how Christians live. Not one of us uh, lives for himself. Now, when he says this, that not one of us lives for himself, he's not just pointing out a timeless truth, that we all need each other. Uh, it's been said, no man is an island. Island, uh, Every man is a piece of the continent. We all need each other. And that's kind of a timeless uh, truth. Instead of making that point, Paul is doing something else. He's unpacking something that would not be true had not Christ risen from the dead as Lord. And that's the point uh, that he's making here. He's speaking of, when he says no one lives for himself, he's speaking of a kind of unity that would not exist had not Christ uh, risen uh, from the dead as uh, Lord. And so he says that Christians don't live for themselves, but they live for the Lord. They live for uh, the Lord. And uh, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead in order that he could be uh, Lord. It doesn't just mean that he's in charge. He's the boss. It does uh, mean that. Certainly it includes that. But uh, he died and rose from the dead. Uh, It speaks of what kind of Lord he is. And to say that Jesus is Lord speaks of what kind of Lord uh, he is. And Christ's kind of Lordship is expressed best in grace and giving to the undeserving. And so to no longer live for yourself, but to live for the Lord is actually to live for others. It's to live for those who are uh, the most undeserving. And that's pleasing to the Lord, especially when it's coupled with uh, thanksgiving. And to live for that Lord, to live uh, for others, even to the most uh, undeserving, means not to follow a rigid law, it's the same for everyone in uh, matters like this where one size uh, fits all, 
but to actually grapple with the question, how best do I serve my neighbor? How, do, how best do I live not for myself, but for uh, the Lord? And uh, serving others in all the complicated relationships that each one of us uh, has may look different for one than it does for the other. And it may look different for one as it does for the other at the very same time and in the very uh, same place. So much so that one may be conscience-bound in living for the Lord, who lives uh, for others and expresses his lordship uh, in serving others. Uh, Conscience-bound to do one thing and another in the same situation, conscience-bound to do the very opposite in the same time and place. And the Lord is pleased with both of them. They're both living, not for themselves, but living uh, for uh, the Lord. And I, I, um, I think Paul is uh, uh, speaking of this when he starts speaking so much about the Lord and why he died and rose for, from the dead, that he may be Lord of all of our activities, whether living, whether dying, whether eating, whether observing a day, whether doing uh, all of these uh, things. Not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of of, uh, the living. He died and rose again to be Lord in this way, to be Lord of all of our lives in such a way that we would uh, seek uh, the benefit, we live in love, the same love uh, by which he became the Lord in uh, that uh, way. So uh, this this kind of unity, a unity of accepting one another and actually knowing that each one is actually pleasing the Lord, even before they they uh, uh, change and, and uh, do the same thing as uh, you're doing, is brought about by the death and resurrection of Christ. To this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and uh, the living. What does that mean? That he died that he might be Lord of both the dead and uh, the living. I think often when we speak of the Lordship of Christ in relation to the gospel, we have too narrow of a focus. Uh, What we mean by that is uh, that he rightly deserves all of your allegiance, which he certainly does deserve all of your allegiance, but he already did before he died and rose uh, again. He died and rose again in order that he might be Lord in such a way that brings forgiveness and salvation and transformation and life and blessing to helpless sinners. That's lordship, to be Lord in that way. Uh, And that's what uh, I think we mean when we say that Jesus is uh, Lord. And so he died to be Lord in that way, bringing salvation both to the living and uh, to the dead, bringing uh, transformation, bringing life and bringing blessing. He couldn't be Lord in that way unless he died and rose again. But now he's Lord in that way over the dead, over the living, over every activity in between. Uh, he's he's uh, Lord um, in the sense of uh, bringing transformation of life to us, his people, in, in, being pleased with us in all of our different um, activities. And so Christ died and rose again that he might be Lord of those practicing 
different practices in love and be pleased with all of them uh, in that uh, way. And so uh, it, Paul's actually working out the tenets of the gospel in this situation and working out what it means for Jesus to be Lord according to the gospel. Well, three ways the gospel brings about unity this morning. The gospel brings about a life of welcome to all the saints. The gospel brings about a selfless kind of life, a selfless uh, kind of life over which Jesus himself presides as Lord over all of it. And since it's a selfless kind of life, it's expressed in different ways, in different situations, according to different uh, relationships, and not necessarily in every case according to hard and fast rules uh, for uh, everyone. Well, a third one, we'll just touch on uh, this briefly. The gospel brings about a life lived for the evaluation of one. And that's in uh, verse 10 to the end of verse 12. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul asks this uh, question. He's actually repeating himself. He's already said this uh, before. It indicates he's not uh, teaching here. He's really, he's really exhorting. He's urging the uh, Romans to, to think about to think about uh, this and uh, to make sure that they're applying it. And so he applies it to them. But you, I'm speaking to you. Why are you judging your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? That's his uh, main uh, point is to uh, remove those and replace them with uh, welcome. But he gives this reason here for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he gives a quote from the Old Testament for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to, uh, to God. He speaks of the judgment for Christians. Uh, don't despise your brother. Don't judge your brother because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of, uh, of God. And he gives a, a verse to prove it will be to each one. Each one of us will give an account of his behavior to uh, God. Now, the judgment seat, the Bema seat, actually that word is mentioned here, the Bema uh, seat, kind of is something that is thought of, I think, with dread by a lot of uh, Christians. It's not really presented in that way. It's actually presented as uh, a, a, a scene of joy for uh, believers uh, but there will be an accounting and there will be reward. There will be reward uh, for what we've done, what the Lord has done through us. Actually, it's uh, grace upon grace that he rewards us and also suffering loss. In other words, the reward might not be as great as it could have been if we had been uh, more obedient, been more loving, more, more conscious of the Lord's uh, uh, lordship. The Bible's pretty clear that for all believers, there will be joy for all at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, and in a very personal manner uh, before uh, the judgment seat. But there's going to be more joy for those who have been more uh, fruitful. And the Bible is pretty clear uh, about uh, that, uh, too. But uh, the um, thought here seems to be that we're not competent to judge our brother or to regard our, our brother with contempt in uh, these things. And only only the Lord himself who's going to judge to every person is competent uh, to, to do this. The Lord wants us to please him, not just in commands. He gives us plenty of those. Some of them are hard, 
uh, for us uh, to obey, and those commands are one size fits all for believers. There uh, for for every uh, uh, believer. Uh, but the Lord doesn't just give us commands to please him, but also asks us to think how to please him in complicated situations. And at the judgment seat of, of Christ, it will be revealed. Um, and a reward will be given for those who have, have uh, done it well or not, uh, have, have not done it. Each will give an account of all those things uh, to the Lord and receive uh, uh, the judgment. But only he can be that judge. Only he can be that uh, judge. And so Paul uh, uses that to say, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you regard your brother with contempt? The Lord himself is going to uh, sort that out for each one in uh, the judgment that is awaiting each uh, one of us. So let me end uh, with this. And that is, what are you doing to express welcome? That's the word that's mentioned here. Full and loving acceptance to those who think differently from you about things that you care about, things that you think are right, but but don't define the church and shouldn't define the church. What are you doing to express uh, welcome uh, to them? The church is consists of people who would not normally be friends with each other, don't have uh, in common enough to normally be friends uh, with each other. Uh, who for personality or interest or, or plenty of other things would not normally uh, be friends, but have Christ in common with each other. That's a church. If it's not that, it's not a church. Uh, it's something else. Uh, it's for those who have Christ in common with each other. And that kind of unity itself is a witness for the gospel, is a, a testimony. If a church divides along worldly lines... Uh, it not only uh, reflects badly on the church, but it reflects badly on the gospel uh, as well. Uh, if the church is united across lines that the world can't overcome, that in itself is a testimony for the gospel. So don't be ashamed of the gospel for yourself to trust in it. Don't be ashamed of the unity that it brings. And don't be ashamed to give the gospel to others. God himself is using the gospel in your life to bring about that unity in the church. And then he's bringing about the unity in the church to bring about a greater gospel witness to others. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that Jesus is Lord and that he became Lord uh, in, in that way of uh, speaking about it through an act of love. Before he went to the cross, he took upon himself uh, the clothing of a servant and washed his disciples' feet and said, do this uh, to one another uh, as well. And so uh, we thank you for his lordship and for what it means uh, for us that um, Christ is uh, working through us, working in us, uh, the same character as uh, himself. Father, we know we and acknowledge that uh, Christ works through us in love to others in, in uh, different situations in different ways. And uh, we pray that we would be mindful of your lordship, uh, mindful of the way in which you work, and uh, that we might understand and practice the unity that the gospel brings about in the church. We pray that you'd use that unity for your glory in the days ahead in this church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.